The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leaf, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is the writer and academic Robert Douglas Furhurst, whose new book is Metamorphosis, A Life in Pieces. Now, Robert's previous books have tended to be about 19th century literature and culture, but this one's very much more personal, and it begins, Robert, with what you describe as a trapdoor. Can you... (laughs) <laughs> explain the trapdoor. Yeah, I and mean, I, I say that we all have trapdoors in our lives that we tend to tread on but then move away from. Um, this one was in a neurologist's office in Oxford. And as she began talking, I could hear the wood creaking slightly. Uh, and then as she delivered the news, which I was, well, was I partly expecting it? Had I been doing some doom Googling? Yes. But also, no, it's still a massive surprise when someone says to you, oh, and by the way, you've got multiple sclerosis. Uh, And that's when the trap door opened and I could just feel myself plummeting. And this was how long ago? So this was 2017. At this point, for the the readers or listeners who who don't know you or your work, you're a don at Magdalen College, Oxford. You previously published, you know, give, give a little sketch of your of your life, because it's a quite, quite a happy life. Yeah, well, well, exactly. I, I mean, so, so the new book is called Metamorphosis, um, but in some ways that had been an underlying theme through quite a lot of the work I'd done up till then. So I'd written about Dickens's attempts to kind of reinvent himself from uh, being a jobbing parliamentary reporter to being a kind of best-selling novelist. Um, I'd written about Lewis Carroll and... Alice's adventures, where she tumbles again, not through a trapdoor, but down into a wonderland, where her own body starts springing surprises on her. So, so in some ways, you might think that everything was building up to this moment uh, of of my own sort of metamorphosis, but it's still a massive shock. As you say in the book, very casually, you know, you you sort of didn't, you, you had some ideas about what MS was, as I imagine most of our listeners do, but most of your ideas turned out to be wrong. <laughs> Yeah. Sort of useful public service as, as well. <laughs> Tell us what this disease actually is. Yeah, so, okay, so multiple sclerosis, uh, or as it used to be known, disseminated sclerosis. Sclerosis refers to the, uh, the plaques or kind of hardened areas of tissue in the brain and uh, spine, which are caused after an inflammation uh, has been kind of tamped down uh, by the immune system. Basically, it's an autoimmune disease. Um, It involves the body mistakenly attacking itself. Uh, What happens is that the body uh, goes into a kind of overdrive of of self-protection. In doing that, uh, it causes inflammation in uh, usually the brain, the spinal cord. And what that then causes the ordinary systems of the body to do is go haywire. So it can involve anything from foggy vision to uh, incontinence to uh, difficulties in walking, swallowing, anything which the nervous system is involved in, which therefore is almost anything. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And and most people have a a form, especially if they're diagnosed when they're younger, uh, and especially if they're female, they have a form that's known as relapsing remitting 
multiple sclerosis, which is where you you get these um, attacks, uh, areas of inflammation, which then often through drugs are, are, are kind of brought down, the symptoms go away again. And then it might be months or years before you have a, another attack. Because I'm older, because I'm male, um, I have the slightly less common form known as primary progressive multiple sclerosis. And what this means is that most of the damage um, in my brain and spine has already been done. So I have these um, plaques, like sort of dead areas uh, in, a, in a coral reef where the the nerves are no longer transmitting information properly from those areas down to uh, other bits of my body. Um, and I'm unlikely to have any more attacks. But what it means is then that progressively, I am likely to get worse and worse. Can you describe how your the, the early early months of your experience of the illness, you know, how you work quite movingly about how that alienates you from yourself and from a sense of your place in the world, maybe, if that's that's phrasing it right. No, that's like, that's exactly right. So, I mean, one of the analogies I make in the book is with the caterpillar in Wonderland asking Alice, who are you? And she's not quite sure because she says, well, I, I, I've changed so many times since this morning. A similar question occurred to me pretty much every day as well. Who are you? Because if you're stumbling when you're getting out of bed or you're, you're, you're tripping over, as, as I was doing more and more often, if your body becomes like a, a stranger to you, a foreign body that you simply happen to be sharing rather than feeling you're fully inhabiting, then, yeah, you, you, you do become a kind of stranger, a stranger to yourself. You know, we've known each other quite a long time and, you you know, you've always struck me as extraordinarily poised and self-confident and at home in the world, you know, sort of debonair and so forth. But the, the story well, you it's, painted... It's all an act, Sam. It's it all is all an act. act. No, the story you painted of your child, you know, you describe your early years as a professor at Oxford being kind of completely convinced you're going to be carted off by the imposter police and that as a child, you know, you didn't really have have a great deal of confidence in in yourself at all. No, and and, and again, I, I talk about how one of my saviours was David Bowie growing up because David <laughs> Bowie used to live just a few streets away from me. Um, and yeah, when, when I when I listened to David Bowie with my you know, my my Walkman, uh, kind of orange headphones clamped on my head, um, I'm listening to him singing things like changes, ch -ch 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 changes, because that's also what I'm going through. You know, puberty it happens. Uh, but also I'm disguising myself uh, uh, often with, with makeup, with some pretty outrageous clothes. Uh, and like a lot of teenagers, for me, it's a kind of shell that I can, I can hide behind. And although later on, yeah, I, I have some academic success, you know, I, I get a job at a lovely Oxford college. But that, that sort of child who's convinced that somebody's going to tap him on the shoulder and say, uh, sorry, it was the other Robert Douglas first. <laughs> could, you, could, you, could you, don't make a fuss, just leave by the nearest gate. It never kind of goes away. Um, and, and again, I, I, in, the, in the book, I talk about my love of superhero comics when I was, when I was a kid, you know, Marvel and DC and, and so on. And, and again, it, it's, about, it's about transformation. Children love superhero comics because it, it, it suggests the possibility of becoming a kind of stronger, abler, kind of more grown-up version of yourself. Um, but even in Oxford, you know, even after several years, uh, you know, lecturing, I, I 
find myself. I found myself. Now I find myself still <laughs> convinced as I kind of walk down to the lectern to, to give a lecture that, again, someone's going to tap me on the shoulder and say, look, just don't make a fuss. <laughs> but obviously that, that sort of superhero transformation has now kind of, you know, at, at that point, it sort of happened in reverse. I mean, I'm interested in your instant reaction, which is maybe the reaction of the child self, is, is to read. Mm-hmm. And this is this is not just a memoir of illness. I mean, it's much more than a memoir of illness. It's also a memoir of reading and the relationship between the two. What was your sort of first resort? I mean, it seems that you've read up on the disease quite quickly. I mean, my, my first resort was to read, uh, to, to find out and read other books, fiction uh, about uh, characters uh, who suffer from MS, which turned out mostly to be pot-boiling romance plots involving thumping passages of sex and heroines being saved by muscular men who literally carry them up the aisle when they can't walk themselves. They, they were mostly disappointing <laughs> because they, they turned out to be rather sadly predictable, whereas the point about MS is it's a maddeningly capricious disease. It's absolutely unpredictable, not only as a whole, but for each patient. You get your diagnosis, but you can never get a prognosis. You never know whether it's going to hit you hard or gently or maybe barely at all. But but all the things I was reading, and, and, it, and it ranged from those romances through to, I don't know, tragedies like King Lear on the grounds that, as Hardy says in one of his poems, if way to a better there be, it exacts a full look at the worst. <laughs> you, you want to rehearse possible disastrous outcomes by by reading about them but but all that reading had a similar kind of appeal which is that as anyone listening to this will know that we read to to seek out models or alternatives to our own lives um and we can then use those books like kaleidoscopes that refract the world around us into different patterns and then to work out who we are that question again, who are you? Who we are by slipping on, imaginatively slipping on another character's skin and trying it on for size. I mean, I'm very interested by what you say about the, the sort of shapeliness of these books in genre and the, the their inadequacy to the, the formlessness of disease in real life. I mean, is that a, an instinct to try and give the disease a shape by putting it into genre? Or is it more that the way that literature tends to use disease is as a plot device. Yeah, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot recently. One of the odd things about this disease, but maybe it's not odd, maybe it's just inevitable, is that it narrows down life's, or it seems to narrow down life's full range of possibilities. And then reading, you hope, becomes a way of opening up that life again, like a set of windows, uh, that every book becomes like a window you can open up onto uh, a, a different version of the world or a bit of a world you can no longer perhaps visit physically yourself. The stories themselves are often disappointingly narrow because they want to slim down the uncertainty of a disease into something which is reassuringly contained and predictable and manageable. You manage a disease uh, by turning it into a story in a way which often you can't manage when it comes to experiencing it. Another point you make is that, that 
you know, MS is sort of invisible through a lot of a lot of literary history. I mean, we know that, you know, so there's a sort of, you know, Oxford, there probably is an Oxford companion to consumption in, in literature, but but there isn't one to MS in literature. You know, but you sort of discover in the course of your investigations that there are writers, you know, sometimes who've been who've obviously or probably had MS, but it hasn't quite been recognized. I mean, can you talk about the sort of history of, of MS in in writing, because I think, as you say, it's before about halfway through the nineteenth century. It's sort of invisible, isn't it? Yeah, and and it's not until um, the French physician Charcot dissects enough of his patients to work out that there is a common pattern, uh, which links their uh, previous symptoms to what he can see uh, under the microscope on 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 the on the slab. He's the one who who first pieces together. These, these fragments uh, of evidence and, in a sense, invents a term for and therefore an understanding of what was then called in English disseminated sclerosis. And in French, it's, uh, gosh, plaque en sclerose disseminée, I think. But yes, the difficulty we have now looking back is that many of the symptoms reported by individuals that we would think of as MS probably were, but we don't have the proof that it, they absolutely were. So, for instance, um, Oscar Wilde's wife, Constance, seems to us now, and certainly to Merlin Holland, the relative who, who wrote about this in The Lancet, seems to have had a form of relapsing, remitting MS, which then, as it often does, sort of degenerated uh, into uh, a secondary form of MS. And because of that, she had uh, an operation which ended up killing her. Heinrich Heine, the great German poet, again, seems to have suffered from a really horrible form of MS that led him living in what he called his mattress grave, prostrate on the floor, unable to move, uh, having to lift up his eyelid in order to see enough to be able to scrawl kind of huge letters of poems uh, or dictate things to his his secretary. And the person I I speak about the most is the most extraordinary naturalist uh, called Bruce Cummings, who published a book called... Um, the Journal of a Disappointed Man in 1919, just a few months before he died, uh, which deals with his own struggles, but also a kind of celebration of the world around him, all the kind of beauty he sees frothing up around him and knowing that he won't be around for much longer to enjoy it, and yet still wanting to write something that will last longer than he will. Well, he's he's slightly cheated, didn't he? I mean... (laughs) He published it, including an account of his own death, like a few months before he actually died. That, that's right. So he says, you know, the rest is silence. Uh, and it turned out that there were still a few whimpers to, <laughs> to come. Um, but in some ways, it was a very literary death, that, because, I mean, Keats, of course, um, who also knew that he was dying, talks about feeling he's living a posthumous existence when he's uh, in Rome. And I suppose Cummings, who, who, who loved Keats... And, and quotes from him in the diaries. I suppose he felt that he could perhaps enjoy that sense of a posthumous existence by by writing his deathbed diary and then living on to see the reception of it. Interestingly, he died before a, a second diary uh, that was assembled posthumously uh, was was published. That was published as a last diary, and also then a collection of his um, other kind of fragments that was put together. When you were immersed in this stuff, you know, and this was certainly at a point when when you were very ill and seemed to have not any great prospect of, of you know, getting sort of remittance from it. Did this literature feel 
consoling because companionable or did it encourage you as Cummings to go carpe diem? I mean, I wonder whether, particularly Heine, you'd feel to make you feel worse about the situation. So doctors often refer to MS as a life-changing disease, which of course it is. Books, I think, are also life-changing, not in the same way. They don't physically alter your life. They didn't physically alter my life, but they can alter how you approach it. I suppose if illness does seem to narrow down the range of possibilities of your life, reading about it can also be a way of focusing that life, you know, like, like, like a beam of light. And it does that by slowing down the pace of your attention, as well as allowing you to imagine lives elsewhere or living otherwise. It allows you to pause over language, to dwell on the things that you normally turn into other things like, you know, shopping lists uh, or indeed blogs. It gives you permission to stop and stare. And there's a neurological description of that. I mean, sort of buried in your book, you talk about the idea that books are are healing in some sense as being very, very ancient one. But there's, there's also, I think you described, don't you, of how some work has been done on the effects of reading on, on stress and so forth. Yeah, and in fact, NHS um, therapists are increasingly recommending prescribing books to their patients as a sort of form of complementary therapy. Well, partly because it's cheap, <laughs> but, but, but also partly because it, it does seem to be effective, that uh, MRI scans show that bits of the brain which are associated with you know, uh, problem solving and with uh, sympathy and other you know, useful social things uh, do light up when we read. Um, the neural pathways then might well be strengthened by that kind of activity, that if exercise of the body helps to strengthen you know, your muscles, your limbs then reading, it seems, might be a way of strengthening yourself neurologically as well. Did you at any point get that kind of, I mean, I think you mentioned that the, the, the Larkin quote, you know, books are a load of crap. You know, literature is the great healing thing that brings us all together. But in, in the face of quite as crappy a situation as you were in, there must have been points at which you just went, you know, I'd like to be picturesque about this and, you know, accord with all of our generic expectations of how reading saved my life. Did you always? Uh, no, not at all. Um, and, and again, and this is going to sound like a paradox, but I think it's a helpful paradox that one of the things that books give you is a greater sense of perspective. And one of those kinds of perspective is indeed perspective about reading, that, that you, you realise that books are not going to be a kind of panacea. They're not going to solve your problems. They, they might allow you to look at them from a slightly different angle. They might be like a TARDIS that picks you up and drops you down in a slightly different kind of place in the world, but that's not going to make things better in and of themselves. So of course, yes, there are moments now where, you know, I read things and I want to hurl the book across the room. Often I'm reviewing books for you, Sam, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I always choose the best ones. Yes. (laughs) You know, there there are people as well as books in the world. And you you say in one of the beginning one of your chapters, it's really kind of striking to me though, because it seems to elucidate a theme that's that runs through a lot of the first half of the book. You say one of the clearest signs that disability is a social malady is how you're responded to by other people. What did you mean by that? What I mean by that is that um, anyone who is diagnosed with a life-changing English uh, um, illness uh, or, or indeed a life-ending illness knows it's almost as hard for the people around them as it is for the patient themselves. Um, And the emotions that are 
caused might include anger and resentment and depression and jealousy and self-pity. All of those can be sparked by what the other person is going through, as well as in the patient themselves. I am exceptionally fortunate that I have a partner who, you know, we've been together for 20 odd years, who I refer to in the book as M. He was, I mean, he's kind of exemplary. And I say that not, you know, out of kind of love or defensiveness, but it really was kind of helpful. Well, as Um, you describe in the book, he he comes across as a sort of figure of absolutely saintly good cheer and... He's he's just very funny. He he realised that what I needed was not sympathy. What I needed was someone to help me put things in perspective. And the best way of doing that is through jokes. You know, a sense of comedy is a sense of perspective. And that meant that saying things like, you know, Thunderbirds are a go, as as he saw me lurching around the living room, uh, which to an outsider might seem, you know, cruel or uncaring, actually was exactly what I needed, what I, I still do need. You also say, which which kind of intrigued me as an analogy, you say that, you know, having an illness, it's like, it's now acknowledged that coming out is not a moment, but a, you know, an absolutely endless process. And that that's analogous to the experience of having having an illness. How does that work? I mean, how do you, as an MS sufferer, how do you come out? Yeah, it, it's a way perhaps of, because it's, like many diseases, uh, MS is usually invisible until it becomes obvious. So in my case, uh, the most obvious symptom, now my voice is slightly stronger than it was, is uh, my walking. So if somebody sees me lurching towards them like the Tin Man in The Wizard of Oz, they'll realise something is pretty seriously wrong. But it means that before that, I will need to warn them, if you see me lurching towards you, it is not that I'm drunk, it is not that I'm stoned. Well, I might be, but it's unlikely that I'm drunk or stoned. It will just be uh, this. And that is, again, it's a kind of social process that doesn't only affect me, is as the as a um, sociologist called Robert Murphy points out, it, it is a social malady, yes. It is a social malady. And, and therefore, trying to work out things that will work for me are also ways of trying to make sure they work for other people as well. This is a book, well, I wouldn't go as far as to say it has a happy ending, but it has a sort of progress which... You know, I mean, certainly, but the first half of the book is looking extremely bleak. And by now I'm speaking to you, and as you say, your voice is better. When you were first had the diagnosis and you first started to get unhealed, did you think, were you kind of pretty much certain this is a death sentence in relatively short order? I, I describe it as halfway between a life sentence and a death sentence, which is exactly what it felt like. I was fortunate in the sense, in, well, in two senses. One is that I, I didn't progress very quickly so that I had a bit of time to get my head around it before my head started exploding, which it did a couple of months later, where the symptoms suddenly ratcheted up and it felt like I was being tasered when I bent my head down and uh, my legs were turning to porridge when I walked and my vision was becoming blurry. You know, a, a lot of kind of rather messy symptoms. So that was fortunate. Uh, But I was also fortunate that I'd come across this form of treatment that was still, is still very experimental, called a hematopoietic stem cell transplant, and realised that that might be the only only solution. Not a way of curing me, but a, a way of stopping me from getting any worse, if I could find someone who would do it for me. What does that treat? Actually, before we get on to that, that treatment, I, just want to, I, remember, I remember getting the email that you sent to all of your friends and contacts saying, this is the situation. 
I'm interested to read you reprint it and do, you know, with your academics rigor, a sort of close reading on it, on its tone, on its tone. How do you read that now? Because it was a very, you know, I mean, it sounds like a cliche, I would say brave, but it was sort of mixed with nonchalance and seriousness. Yeah, and and I suppose I I was asking for something other than sympathy and pity in a way which therefore was asking both for sympathy and pity, but didn't want to be seen to be vulnerable enough to need these things. So so I, I look back now and it seems stoic on the surface, and yet you scratch the stoicism and you find a kind of a whimpering wreck. And that is probably a fair summary of what I what I felt like. The whimpering wreck was given some hope by the news of this treatment. Can you explain what the hemostatic... I'm going to get it quite wrong, but the hemostatic treatment actually involves. So, so, so stem cells are the, the basic building blocks of everyone's life, and there are different kinds. Hematopoietic means um, the kind that kind of are found in your blood, uh, migrates um, uh, into the blood. And what this treatment involves is... And it's something that's been done with um, leukaemia patients for quite some time. It's a way of extracting the stem cells by whizzing your blood, your peripheral blood, through a, uh, a special machine that kind of sucks them out it, it, like a sort of strawberry pink goo. Uh, and then they are frozen. And then you are given a lot of chemotherapy that basically dials down your immune system to practically nothing. So you become then like a baby. Uh, a kind of an innocent new immune system, kind of reborn in new, uh, immune system. And then the stem cells are reintroduced. And the hope is that um, the analogy is like a computer, that it, it, it's a way of rebooting your immune system so it no longer mistakenly attacks itself, which is what happens with MS patients. And instead, it kind of is rebuilt in a way which refreshes your insides and, and allows your body to start repairing itself. As you went through that process... You describe how it's almost more isolating because you are literally isolated, aren't you? Beckett, I noticed at this point, comes in quite heavily. I mean, there's a sort of almost a kind of playlist of various literary greats that runs through this book, but that that feels to me like the Beckett section. Is it? Very much, especially Winnie in Happy Days. So uh, Winnie in Happy Days is buried up to her waist in the first act of the play and then buried up to her neck. Uh, but still, you know, cheerfully kind of burbling away and singing snatches of songs to herself and remembering fragments of, of, of her reading. Yeah, I mean, being in isolation in hospital for up to a month as I was, where um, you're subject to barrier nursing, so nobody can come and see you unless they've disinfected themselves. You have to be monitored all the time for possible infections because your immune system is basically zero. I did feel a little bit like like Winnie, where it's never entirely clear whether her cheerfulness is genuine or a kind of strange Pavlovian reaction to, to her surroundings. And I sort of felt the same. On the one hand, this was isolating and depressing and uh, like a horrible rehearsal of what we'd all go through with the pandemic um, uh, a year or so later. Yes, it hadn't yet happened. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, but, but it was also strangely kind of elating, not because of the drugs that I was on, although I did wonder about that at one point, uh, but because... It's not often that any of us get a chance to start again. And, and this physiologically is a kind of treatment that does give you the possibility of starting again. You talk about also, which kind of rhymes slightly with your experience of being alienated from your own body, you know, in the early stages of the disease. And I think you compare it to James Duffy in the James, the James Joyce short story, that your 
relationship with the doctors means that you're they cease to relate to you completely as a person. How did that affect you? What was that experience? It's very strange. I mean, but also absolutely inevitable that when you become a patient, you become a patient. In other words, you stop being you, the uh, individual with a history and a social network and a complicated bundle of needs and desires and fears. And instead, you become a bundle of physiological kind of problems to be solved. You become a number. So the, the, the front of my hospital door, it was my name, but also my number. Uh, I had a wristband with my number on it, uh, which obviously would aid identification if I was taken to ICU and then taken to the morgue afterwards, which was a genuine possibility with this kind of treatment. And your relationship then with the people treating you becomes one of professional courtesy and gratitude, and yet it never feels like a fully human relationship because you are not being treated as a full human being. You are being treated as a patient, the patient. Is that inevitable, do you think? No, I know. I, I, I think it is. And I have nothing but, you know, respect and gratitude for the people who, who treated me. I, I think from their point of view, it, it's a necessary saving mechanism that um, you can't, as a doctor, start wringing your hands and whimpering over the pain you're inflicting on someone. You might sort of you know, stroke their head as they're vomiting into, vomiting into a bucket or, in, in my case, peeing into a, um, a kind of cardboard tube because you're too weak to get out of bed. What you want is professional kind of understanding rather than sort of um, hand-wringing sympathy. And when you know, the, the great day comes and you're released and your, your little stem cells have turned into new, you know, a, a, new, a whole new immune system has been acquired, a very fragile one at this stage. Your recovery, you do describe it as a sort of joyous description of, of the sort of bibliotherapy course, turning into some, I mean, you're isolated and you're, you're still not able to go out as much as you'd like. There's a sort of second level of loneliness there. But what were you reading then? Because there are some, some things that obviously seem to, to help a lot. Yeah, so um, I read a lot of Ian Forster. <laughs> um, and I read a lot of Forster because, uh, after all, the the author of A Room With A View knew what it was to escape or to not be allowed to escape. And as I say in the book, that when I was looking out of my study window, as I am now, while I talk to you, <laughs> there's not much going on. Whereas when you're reading books like Forster's, you're the books become like a set of windows that go in all kinds of interesting directions. So it was, it was a way of um, escaping while staying exactly where I was. A fatuous question to ask in some ways. Is Did it work? How are you now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's an absolutely reasonable question. And the answer is, of course, I don't know. Well, I do know and I don't know. Um, I do know in the sense that I recognise that some things are better. My voice is stronger. My bladder is slightly more predictable than it was slightly worse my walking is is slightly worse uh, i don't quite understand the physiology but i know that is not uncommon with this kind of ms and this kind of treatment um did it work if there were a control subject in other words if i could be cloned and one of me would go through a treatment the other one didn't then we'd know as it is some things are better some things are worse most things are exactly the same and, and that's what you want usually with medicine what you wants is uh, to be cured and that's what people expect whereas with this particular treatment the most you can hope for is that 
you remain stable, that things don't get any worse. Now, there are there are stories of miraculous transformations, much kind of bigger metamorphoses than mine, from people who are usually younger, female, uh, relapsing, remitting MS, for whom the treatment has been transform- transformative. Um, in my case, uh, what has transformed, I suppose, is my attitude towards the rest of my life. Uh, and that is a bonus I wasn't expecting. And in what way has it transformed? So... It's not fair to say that I was sleepwalking through my life because I think I was appreciating most of it before I was diagnosed. But as Dennis Potter famously says about knowing that you're going to die of of cancer in his case, everything becomes sharper, everything becomes brighter. Something very, very small, like, you know, a, a friendly text or the touch of someone's fingers on your skin. These things become not only more important, but more valuable uh, as well. So, yeah, I, I feel that the, the dial has been, has been turned up. In the book, you're, or for some of the book, you're working, which seems to rhyme quite well with your, your state of mind, on, on a, an edition of uh, J.M. Barry's Peter Pan stories. What are you doing now for your academic fans who want to know what's coming next? At the moment, absolutely nothing. It's the first time for about 10 years I haven't had a project uh, on on the back burner. Uh, uh, when I was in hospital, I had three or four things that I was juggling, one of which was that um, edition of Peter Pan, which of course I wanted to do because it's all about things not changing. Uh, and, and now, no, I, I mean, I was, I think this, this is a book I, I felt I needed to write, not just for me, but for all the other people who can't or don't write about it. Because as I might've said already, it is one of those diseases which is largely inaudible. It It, it, it is not really understood and the experience of the people are just not understood so i think i need to do that but then after that I, I i really don't know possibly a book on how to read more generally that 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 might be what's next well I, it's always music to my ears to hear that you're in between books because i can pester you to review more robert douglas <laughs> first thanks very much thank you <laughs>